Let us pray. O God, who has given us thy holy word to be a lantern unto our feet and a light upon unto our paths, bless, we beseech thee, this copy of the Holy Scriptures. Enlighten the heart and mind of those who shall read therein, that they and those who hear may come to know him who is the way, the truth, and the life, even Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who with thee, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, liveth and reigneth God, world without end. Amen. There you go. Enjoy. All right. We're going to keep praying, so the Lord be with you. Almighty God, by our baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you turn us from the old life of sin. Grant that we, being reborn to new life in him, may live in righteousness and holiness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so we have arrived at the uh, sacrament section of uh, the, the catechism. Um, just a few thoughts before we continue. Um, the first Anglican Catechism in 1549 did not include a section on the sacraments. It was just, uh, the, just kind of like creed, Lord's Prayer, commandments kind of thing. Um, and it was very simple, a children's catechism. It was uh, meant to uh, get kids to recite the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. Uh, and it was only in 1662, and if you know your English history, um, that was after the Commonwealth and, uh, and when the Presbyterians took over, uh, that a section was added on the, on the, on the sacraments. Um, and it was kind of like a fourth section that was tacked on at the end. Um, and it covered baptism and the Eucharist. Uh, and this was sort of, uh, well, the, the, the generous read is that all of these wonderful, holy uh, Anglican bishops were uh, intent on teaching the people of the realm the, the true faith, and were, uh, now the, the, the other read on it is that it was just kind of like Puritan beating, uh, but, <laughs> but the reality of it is that, uh, that this was a major dispute in that century. Um, what, what is the nature of a sacrament? Um, what does it do? Um, what is it for? And uh, the, the Church of England, having uh, restored the monarchy, the monarchy in those years, um, began to teach again uh, uh, that historic teaching of, of what a sacrament is. Um, and this is not unimportant because uh, you, you, uh, in, in the United States, um, the inheritors of that Puritan tradition um, are not Presbyterians in this country, although there are some, but, uh, but more like Baptists. Um, uh, so uh, the, that tradition went further and further to the kind of radical end of the spectrum, and, uh, and we Anglicans continued to teach on the sacraments. And indeed, actually, there was a flourishing of sacramental teaching and, uh, and life um, in the last few centuries. So that's all to say that uh, there's a history behind this and some of the reasons that if some of you grew up in Baptist churches, you're like, well, why did we never learn that? Well, it's because, it's because of this particular history, right? Um, it's the reason the, the, uh, the pilgrims came to the United States. Um, it's the reason they came to the colonies, to, to escape the kind of oppression of the Church of England and teaching about things like sacraments and, uh, and other things they found odious, like, uh, like wearing vestments and... Uh, uh, giving rings in marriage and uh, making the sign of the cross on babies and baptism. Uh, and so it's all those kinds of things that they fled. Um, and so uh, the flourishing of this kind of theology really did take place in America. There's no doubt about that. Um, 
but, but, uh, but Anglicans have continued to teach the historic teaching, and so that's one of the things that we'll do in this time. When this catechism was produced, there was a long and, uh, and fun ongoing debate about where the sacraments should fit. Some people argued that it should be a fourth section at the very tail end, and, uh, and um, others argued that it should be integrated without, throughout the catechism, and that's really what wound up happening, but there is this section tacked onto the Apostles' Creed. And the reason that it comes after the Apostles' Creed is to show you that uh, this tight relationship between the sacraments and uh, uh, the creedal faith. Um, and I think this is really important. The other thing that I think is really important is that like all classes, I don't know if you, you know, when you were taking history classes, you know, in elementary school and you always wondered, why didn't we cover the Cold War? Why didn't we cover, you know, the Great Depression? Well, <laughs> it's because it was at the end, right? And, and there's never enough time. And so one of the things we really wanted to be clear about is you know, make sure that this is upfront, make sure that it's, um, that it's woven throughout the whole of the catechism. So um, that's the reason that the sacraments are upfront. Um, I think they tend to get neglected otherwise, and so uh, we'll, we'll launch in from there. Okay. You ready? This is page 55, question 121. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. Now, there's a lot going on here, but this definition of a sacrament actually comes from St. Augustine, and it's in the kind of refounding of the Augustinian tradition, which you know, had been alive and well in the church, um, straight up through the medieval period, uh, that uh, people like Thomas Cramner uh, insist upon definitions like this. Note what's going on in the definition here of what a sacrament is. It includes two parts. What are the two parts? Yeah, well, first, the outward invisible sign, right? And then, Ren, you had it. What's the other part? The inward and spiritual grace, okay? So you've got these two parts, one is the thing that you can see, touch, taste, feel, etc. The other is what? Yeah, what's grace? You can't see it. Like, <laughs> not yet, anyway. Um, but I will remind you of this, um, and I've been saying a lot about this lately. Grace is not an unthing, right? It's not like it, it doesn't exist. Um, uh, we tend to think, uh, as uh, being raised in this wonderful, not so wonderful, uh, materialist universe, like things that I can't see don't really exist. But we're Christians, and so we hold that uh, grace is actually a thing, that grace is actually a substance, that grace does exist, right? Um, that we can't see it shouldn't surprise us, right? Um, it's invisible. Um, and so a sacrament has two parts, and this is why we could even speak of sacraments uh, bridging the gap between heaven and earth. And that's actually a really good way to think about it, um, is that um, Christians think sacramentally because we believe, as we say in the creeds, and this is what I really want you to see. We state in the Nicene Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of um, all things, visible and what? Invisible, seen and unseen, right? So we not only um, affirm that God creates all things, but we also affirm that God has created as things things visible and things invisible, things seen and unseen. And um, at the very heart of the Christian faith is this um, understanding that the invisible God and the person of Jesus Christ has been made incarnate by the Virgin Mary. So we actually, you know, listen, no matter what somebody might say about sacraments, 
Christianity is a sacramental faith, right? The incarnation is the center of all of this. It draws together both, um, both visible and invisible. The invisible God is made visible. Um, okay, so that's, that's the first part, is that it's an outward and visible sign and an inward and spiritual grace. So you always, in a sacrament, have an outward and visible sign and an inward and spiritual grace. Um, God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. So here's the second part, which is that um, the, the sign is given as a means by which we receive that grace. Okay, so the sacraments are a kind of instrument of God's grace. That's actually a really good way to put it. Um, and they're, you might even say, they're effectual signs, or some might say means of grace. Um, and as a tangible assurance, right, you can see it, you can taste it, you can, you can, you can touch it, you can taste all of it, right, um, that we do in fact receive it. So let me just kind of contrast this with various other positions. There are others who will say something like this. Oh, no, 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 you've already received the grace. The grace is already given to you. This is a sign that you have received it, right? So that's, that's one of the kind of options on the playing field. The other, is, the other is that you can never really know whether you've received grace or not. That's not possible for us in this life. Um, indeed, some would even go so far as to say everything we do in this life is a parody of the real thing which is going on in heaven. Okay. Um, you know, nothing here is actually really real. The real stuff's in heaven, okay? Another position would be to say uh, something like, um, God is so far remote from us that the idea of a sacrament is, is impossible, okay? Um, and I want you to hear all that, right? Because it's the, it's, it's the, this sacramental insistence is um, rooted in the Incarnation, that God is not far off, right? That God is not uh, kind of like, you know, light years away, but is, but is immediate, um, though unseen. And in the incarnation, these two, these two are brought together. The earthly and the heavenly realities are brought together in one. Um, why a tangible assurance, though? Well, I mean, just let's, let's just think about this. Have you ever doubted God's grace? Like, I don't know if you're human if you have not doubted God's grace, <laughs> or you're saying, like, am I really forgiven? That's a big question, you know. Um, is God real, even? Um, and so, what's the reality here? Well, the reality here is that we are, we are, um, we are actually, we are actually, we are sacramental, are we not? I mean, listen, you either hold that human life is simply material, Right? It's simply matter. There's no soul. There's no nothing um, beyond just what, you know, veins and skin and eyes and all of that and a mind, um, which is still nebulous, right? Um, or you hold that there's something which exists on a different plane but is connected with my body and that the two are united in one, that I'm a totality of both body and soul, body and spirit, um, and of course, what do Christians believe? The latter, yes, the latter, emphatically the latter, right? So that means that we're sacramental, which means that, um, and I think as a necessity, um, we must have sacraments, right? It's not a matter of like, oh, sacraments are nice to have. No, it's we must have sacraments. 
there's a sacramental hunger in every human being. Um, why? Because we, we understand this. We know this. No matter how much we might try to deny it, um, we still understand it. Um, and this is something that uh, has become difficult, um, especially in the face of, of uh, the Enlightenment and modernism, which sort of says, well, wouldn't it be great if we could sort of exist on a plane or with an idea that maybe God doesn't exist and maybe all of these unthink, unseen things that we've been preoccupied with for all of human history, like, aren't there? Um, and that's really what secularity is. It's this idea of, like, I don't have to have all of that stuff in my invisible universe swirling around my head in order to exist a real life. And that's, you know, I love what Charles Taylor says, that's, that's an achievement, you know, that's an achievement of human history. Is it a good achievement? Well, that remains to be judged. I think, I will actually say this, you know, in the last century, uh, materialism really did rear its ugly head, and the ugliest parts of materialism came out in droves. Um, largely in mass murders and, uh, and uh, totalitarian regimes that had little room for, um, for faith, um, let alone sacraments. You know, one of, the, one of the first things that the Soviets did was suppress brutally, brutally, um, the sacramental life of the church. They just, they just suppressed it. Because, listen, they know they can't exist alongside it. Okay? Um, and so that's a, that's a key thing. Um, and I would even say today, you know, one of the things going on that's a big fight um, right now is I, I don't think it's over elections. I don't think it's over, like, stealing elections. The big fight we've got right now is, look, is the worshiping, publicly worshiping life of the church essential to the church? And I would say, absolutely, right? This sacramental life of the church is essential. You can't just sort of throw it aside and say, well, oh, you know, it, it'll, it, it would be great if we could be, like, you know, engaged in the life of the sacraments and things, right? But look, we're seeing it, aren't we? We're seeing it up close and personal. Um, some churches are saying, like, listen, you know, a, a gathered sacramental life is not necessary because we've already theologically precluded it, Right? So the live stream is fine. It's not sort of a dispensation given public health needs. It's, it's, it's the real deal. It's everything. Um, and I think from the, from the Catholic perspective, we would say it's not everything. It's, it's a temporary dispensation from the norm, right? And we've got people that are still watching live streams, like we're live streaming this. Well, why? Because there are people who are saying, I know that I'm not going to be able to go to church until this thing is passed. But I would also hope they would say, but there's something deficient about that, right? Um, and I would hope that others would say, I'm willing to make the sacrifices necessary to be present right? Because of the grace that's on offer in the presence, right? In this, in this, uh, um, in this sacramental life of the church. Okay, but I'm going on too long. But you see what I'm talking about is that um, this has been made absolutely clear by the whole, uh, in, in the whole scheme of things lately. Um, and I think some of the attitudes that you'll hear, you know, in friends of mine in California that have been closed, I mean, their church has been closed for like nine months now. Um, almost 10 months, they've been consistently saying, like, the, the powers that be just don't get it. They don't understand that, like, the sacramental life of the church is the life of the church, right? Um, and, and so people are, well, well, you know, 
what's wrong with the live stream? Well, you know, I guess there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not the fullness, right? Um, so that's important to keep in mind. Um, these tangible, it's tangible, right? Um, and I think we need to insist that Christian teaching is as much about things as it is, as much about visible things as it is about invisible things, okay? Um, and, and this would be the reality of it. The more you play up one or the other, visible or invisible, the more you drift into um, a kind of, well, on the one hand, Gnosticism, where you basically say, well, you know, can't really say the material things are all that important. I mean, they're, they're probably just a distraction. <laughs> like, that's Gnosticism. On the other end of the spectrum, you simply say, well, you know, I don't really know that much about spiritual things. All I know is about material things. And so, you know, there are people who are saying that they're materialist Christians for whatever that means. I have no idea what that means. Um, it's, 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 it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's just completely and utterly ridiculous. Um, but I would say that um, it is the tendency of American Christians and Christians in the West to put a vast chasm between the visible and the invisible, right? Um, and that actually didn't start um, in the Reformation. It started well in advance of the Reformation. And it was one of the fallouts of scholasticism was this vast, um, um, you know, God being so far out there um, and, and descending in the sacraments, right? Um, whereas I think, I think a much better view is that um, God makes himself known in the sacraments, um, reveals. There's like a tear in the curtain between the visible and the invisible. Okay, but I'm going on too long. Okay, how should you receive the sacraments? I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments, and obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. Now, I want to parse this out a little bit because some of it can be potentially confusing, but I'm going to go bit by bit through it. I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ. Okay. So, um, in the Reformation, there, there's a battle about this. Like, let's talk about the Eucharist for a moment. Right. How do you receive the Eucharist? Like, let's say pre-Reformation Roman, Roman Catholicism. How do you receive the Eucharist? With your tongue, right? <laughs> you receive it with your tongue, right? You, you eat. And, and listen, in a very real way, that's absolutely true, right? That's how you receive the, You can't receive the Eucharist without, you know, but there are ways, and we talk about, like, spiritual communion, right? So there's this, there actually is a difference between... Um, sacramental communion and spiritual communion, and they're related, right? They're completely related, because you can actually, um, you know, even the scholastic um, theologians talk about this. You can, you can receive the, the visible sign, right? Um, and yet the spiritual, com the spiritual portion of it is hindered in some way, or we'll they'll talk about like an obex, right? They'll kind of block, and like I've sort of shut myself off to God's grace, and so there's something that's, that's troubling that. Um, listen, I'm just going to come right out and tell you that, that uh, we receive the invisible grace of the sacraments by faith. There's no doubt about that. I think that's, that's just the right way to put it. But we receive the invisible benefits of the sacrament by receiving the tangible thing, right? So you have to have both. I think this, this answer is a little bit like, oh, let's step away from the visible reality and the tangible assurance. Like, no, they, they go together. Um, 
Uh, and and uh, in that vein, I would even say, like, those, though making a spiritual communion while you're live streaming the Eucharist is not a bad thing, it's still deficient, right? <laughs> still, it's still not the fullness. Um, faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments. Now, this is a much better answer than what was in the previous catechism, which, is, which says that faith is necessary to receive grace just full stop. That's wrong, actually. Um, <laughs> grace actually precedes faith. Um, we have to be clear about this, otherwise we, we wind up in a kind of uh, Pelagian world where, listen, I, I make the, it's actually semi-Pelagianism, I make the first step towards God and then he makes the step towards me, right? It's never that way. Actually, the way it works is God makes the first step, God takes the, takes the initiative in, in, uh, in our life in Christ, and we respond by his grace, and only by his grace, um, by faith. So it's actually, this is really important, it's actually grace that precedes our receiving of grace in the sacraments by faith. Does that make sense? So we have to be enabled by God's grace to receive this, right? Um, and obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. And this is the key, right? This is really big. Many people, I mean, and I, I say this, this is really important. Many, many, many people are like, well, I was baptized as a baby, you know, and, and I grew up receiving communion, and it's like, but it never seemed to take. Like, it never really seemed to do anything. Like, why didn't it do anything? And I would just say, it was doing things. Like, here's the problem. It's that you were, on the other end, undermining that grace. You were constantly working against it. You were fighting against God. And, you know, that's a battle you're ultimately going to lose um, one way or another. Um, but, but it's to understand that, you know, we might look around and say, well, you know, I see him in church every Sunday, and he's a real jerk. Like, <laughs> where's the grace of the sacraments there, Father? And I would say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to gossip, okay? But, <laughs> but, but the reality of it is that, that obedience, especially obedience in prayer, um, really does, um, and you, you might even use the word, um, it, it uh, and I don't want to use this word too strongly, but activates the grace of the sacraments, right? Um, so that's key. Um, if, you, if you want to see the, the grace of the sacraments bear fruit, you have to pair it with obedience and prayer. That's the key. Um, okay, you ready? This is where we're going to get into the, into the, like, the, the biggest debates that Anglicans have ever had, and it's going to be fun and not real fun. Okay. What sacraments were ordained by Christ? The two sacraments ordained by Christ that are generally necessary to salvation are baptism and Holy Communion, also called the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist. These are sometimes called sacraments of the gospel. Okay, so I'm just going to preface all this. Prior to the Reformation, there was beginning to be in the West widespread agreement that there are seven sacraments. Um, in fact, uh, Henry VIII wrote in Latin a defense of the seven sacraments, right, in the, in the, in the, against Martin Luther in the, like, 1520s. Um, it was very common. Um, it was not a consensus heading into those centuries, but it became the consensus in the West that there were seven sacraments. The debate was about this, and I'm going to try to square it up as best I can. Which sacraments are necessary for salvation? And how can we say they are? Okay. Starting in the 13th century, and really earlier in the 12th century, 
there was a, uh, a canonical requirement that every Christian make their confession once a year. Is that a good thing? Well, listen, I'm going to be the first one to tell you. It's a good thing to make your confession at least once a year, and you should, right? However, can I make it mandatory? There's a big question there. Does Scripture give me leave to say, you must make a confession once a year? No. Um, and so the, the Reformers struggled with this, because they, they especially because uh, the sacrament of penance was tied up in the sale of indulgences and like all kinds of other things. It was all wrapped up in this. Um, another question. Um, must I receive the anointing of the sick directly prior to my death in order to go to heaven when I die? There were many in that time that were saying, yes, absolutely. Because, listen, you know, you might die without, without receiving all that grace. And then, you know, you're in trouble, potentially. Like, who knows? I don't know. Um, so there was, there was a kind of widening of the necessity of the sacraments. Now, no one was saying, like, you must be married in order to go to heaven. Like, that was not being said. In fact, the opposite was being said. <laughs> like, like, it's really hard to go to heaven when you're married. And, like, those of us who are married are like, yes, I understand that. Like, because <laughs> it's really hard, you know. And, and then those of you who are single are like, really? Is that really true? And it's like, yes, it's really true. It's like, you know, so this is a real problem, right? And you have to figure this out. Like, you know, do I have to become a monastic in order to be saved? Um, you know, do I, and again, do I have to be anointed? Do I have to also? And here's where the Anglicans come down. The Anglican reformers basically come down to it by saying this, and this is unique in the Reformation. There are two sacraments that are ordained by Christ as generally necessary for salvation. Okay? Baptism and the Eucharist. I'm just going to put that one up there, right? Why? Why do we say that? I love this. Why do Anglicans say anything? Definitively. Because Holy Scripture says it, right? And, and they're just emphatic about that. And, you know, if you want chapter and verse, I'll give it to you. Uh, Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, right? Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot be saved. Like, it's just constant in Scripture, right? Uh, the, the, the Eucharist, right? Um, Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. Um, you know, it's just replete, right? Um, and so these had been traditionally received teachings of Scripture. Now, it's at this point that I have to clarify, right? Generally necessary means generally necessary. <laughs> what do we mean by that? And the best way that I can describe it is to give you a, to tell you a story, okay? Um, when I was uh, a senior at A&M, uh, you know, we don't get the kind of service that Baylor Bears get. Um, you know, you have, you have to do things on your own. You have to exercise your fierce independence. You know, there's nobody holding your hand. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I did my uh, degree audit just prior to graduation. Maybe it was like a month before graduation. And it was just sort of like get your ducks in a row, make sure you got all the classes you need to graduate and all of this. And my degree audit came back with a fail. It's like you don't have the necessary requirements, and here's what you're missing. You're missing an international elective. To which I responded, what the heck? I took the international elective that I was counseled to take. It was uh, history, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, martial arts, cultures, and peoples. <laughs> okay, so I took a wonderful class with a sensei who was like, you know, he was like, he had black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and like, it was unbelievable. Um, 
And so I took this class, and I was counsel. I was told, like, you know, you want a really fun, interest, interesting international elective that will count towards your degree? Like, take martial arts, cultures, and peoples. And I was like, oh, yeah, this was awesome. And we, like, watched, like, kung fu movies. It was unbelievable. Uh, learned a lot, actually. So I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Well, so I, uh, I went over to the uh, undergraduate programs office in the business school and said, I need to talk to somebody who can rectify this. And, uh, and the poor student worker behind the desk was like, well, uh, they're unavailable to speak with anyone right now. Uh, so why don't you come back later in the day or uh, schedule a time to meet with, with so-and-so? And I took a big deep breath and I said, you don't understand. Like, I'm not leaving this office until somebody sees me about this. And she was like, really? I said, I am not leaving this office. <laughs> like, <laughs> because, because, you know, I was like, I have, you know, I have to go to seminary in the fall. I can't be sitting here trying to take another class while I'm trying to do that. Um, so, after three hours of sitting in the waiting room, I was finally seen by the director of undergraduate programs. And she said, oh, I'm so terribly sorry. Your, your, your advisor made a giant mistake. Like, she was not to do this. She makes these mistakes. I'm really sorry. This was not, like, this was not supposed to happen. But here's what I'll tell you. Like, go do um, uh, uh, a degree audit in, like, three days, and it should be taken care of. Well, so when I went to go to the degree audit, I had credit for a graduate-level class that I had never taken. <laughs> right? And why am I telling you this story? Are two international electives from a select list generally necessary to graduate? You bet they are. Can exemptions be made? If you have the power, right? And here's the deal, God has the power, okay? So that's, that's why I tell you this, is are, are baptism and the Eucharist generally necessary for salvation? You bet. Can God do anything he wants? Yes, okay? So that's why I tell you that. Is God, in, in the ancient church, they actually believed that um, Say you, say you were martyred before you could be baptized. You were a catechumen. Well, then you had the baptism of desire. God took care of it another way. Or actually, it's baptism by blood, actually. Um, if you died before and weren't a martyr, then it was baptism of desire. Um, baptism by blood was if you, you died the martyr's death before you were even a Christian, right? So it's all considered in that way. And I think this is really important to state because uh, people will often say, well, how can you say it's necessary for salvation? I said, didn't say necessary. I said, generally necessary. <laughs> and, and, and people might say, well, how can you say it's necessary for salvation at all? It's like, well, because Scripture says it, right? And, and there are exceptions to every rule, right? But in this case, the exception proves the rule, right? It's, and that's really important to just say. Um, and I think we can get off track otherwise by saying, well, you know, sacraments don't really mean anything, and they don't really, they don't really work to save you. And we're going to talk all about this as we go forward. But the first thing you need to know is that's the division, right? The division is between those sacraments that are generally necessary for salvation, binding upon all Christians, you must do this, right? And those that aren't. Now, are they good? You bet. But you don't have to, right? Um, and I think this is really key, especially when we start to talk about things like marriage and ordination and how can we understand these things? How can we really get to the meat of it? Is it necessary to really arrive as a Christian to be ordained? Well, God, I hope, you know, thanks be to God, it's not, 
right? Because I would hate that for all of you. It's like, no, that's not, you don't want that. Like, <laughs> and, and in many ways, I think if you, if you offer yourself for ordination, you should go kicking and screaming till the bishop's hands are on your head, right? That's how it should be. Um, do, you see what, do you see my point? It's like, we have to have this clarity, right? All Christians should be baptized, and all Christians should receive the Eucharist regularly. On the other hand, we can say, these sacraments are good, they're wonderful gifts, you receive grace by them, right? Because they're sacraments. And I'm going to talk more about that in the next question. Um, but are they required? Well, no. Like, you don't have to be married to go to heaven. You don't have to, like, um, you don't have to uh, be ordained. Um, you don't have to, uh, you know, all those things. Um, I would note as well, and this is really important, um, that the church has traditionally taught that there are some people who are precluded from being priests, precluded from being uh, married, precluded from, uh, from those things. Well, why? Well, I'm just going to give it to you straight. Like, if you don't have hands, you can't be a priest. Why? Because you have to use your hands to celebrate the Eucharist, right? Um, you know, it's traditionally said that if you've maimed your body in any way whatsoever, you, you cannot be ordained. Why? Because there's this, because they actually used to, people used to actually intentionally maim their bodies so they wouldn't be ordained. Okay, but I want to kind of hold that out. Okay, well, why do we do that? You know, there are some people, and this is, this is really important, you know, when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, one of the things I want to know is, is there anything that would prevent you from being married? Because if you don't disclose it and get married, your marriage is invalid. Why? Because you don't meet the necessary preconditions for this, right? So my point is that no one must. Um, and, and the reality is everybody agrees about that. That's, that and actually, that's, a, that's agreed upon um, uh, on some of those things. Um, the question is that the Roman Catholic Church has continued to persist in this teaching that, that you must make a confession, like that that is absolutely necessary. And, and the reality that, that we Anglicans find is, well, show me. Show me in Scripture where that's required. And this is where that phrase that Anglicans use, um, all, Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. And what, is, what does it say is necessary to salvation? Baptism in the Eucharist. Okay. Now, having said that, I will say, like, confession is a great gift. And be careful that you don't spurn that gift, right? I will not say some, you know, uh, some should, all may, none must. Like, I don't say that, because that's, that's ridiculous. It's just a ridiculous statement. Um, what I'll say instead is, there are some people where I will just say, you cannot receive communion until you've made a confession. Full stop. You're not admitted to communion in this church. Like, why? Because you've committed an act that's so scandalous that to do that without a sacramental confession would be scandalous in itself, right? Um, so we can say must, right? We absolutely can. Um, so, I want to throw all that out to you. This is really important. Go ahead. Um, I think this question is relating to the scandal, the serious one. Yep. Uh, so, something I'm kind of confused about is, in the sacrament, if Christ is administering grace to us, yep. then why are there such strict requirements for us to receive the sacrament? So, for example, right. uh, one is you have to earnestly and sincerely desire to repent from your sins, right. and I can say, but then I'm also really Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or like if I have weakness, it's like, well, yeah, I don't know if I have Christ right now, but that's part of why I want to receive this sacrament. That's a good question. Okay, so there are two ways you can look at it. 
you can either put forth a canonical requirement that's written down and basically a, an ecclesiastical law, right? Or you can look at, look at it much more in the pastoral sense, right? And I think, you know, the reality is we Anglicans tend to err on the side of the pastoral sense. And not in the loosey-goosey pastoral sense, but in the like, if you're at enmity with your next-door neighbor and you want to kill them, you probably shouldn't receive communion until you've forgiven them. It would be bad for you. Like, you might die. <laughs> like, it's that kind of thing, right? Um, whereas I think, uh, you know, in the Roman church, it would be something like, by hating your neighbor, you've committed a mortal sin. And unless you go to confession, you're going to go to hell. Right? Does that make sort of sit there? And like, so, and, it's, and especially if you receive communion on top of that, like, then you're definitely going to hell, right? Um, now, that might be true. <laughs> might, might being the key word. But you see what I'm saying is that there's not a canonical kind of thing sitting there saying, like, we can look it up in a book and tell you whether or not you ought to receive. Like, there's a lot more kind of um, introspection into the state and the actual state of someone's soul. There's actually a desire to understand that. And that's why, like, in the, in the exhortation in the, in the prayer book, it goes a bit like this. It's like, if you have an unsettled conscience you ought not receive until you've spoken about that with a priest and received absolution. Like, this is right in the prayer book. I mean, this is not, this is not new. This has been around for a long time. Um, and I would say the same thing, right? I would say, if you have an unsettled conscience, you've got to go to confession. Like, that's really important uh, because you're not going to settle your conscience by yourself. But that's a pastoral, you see, that's a pastoral response. And in confession, I'm not just sort of doling out, uh, like, absolution. I'm giving you absolution, yes, but I'm also going to sit there and talk with you about it. Um, so I want you to see that, right? I think um, some people who've been Roman Catholics are often very surprised when they go to confession in an Anglican setting because it's like, oh, you actually took a lot of time with me and you, like, wanted to give me some, you know, counsel. Like, that was amazing. Um, whereas sometimes it's like, you know, it really, like, it's not just a cliche. It's like, you know, two Hail Marys and an Our Father and, you know, get out of my confessional. It's like, you know, that's how things go. It's one of the things I find to be a great value in Anglicanism is that we've, we've maintained this. And in fact, in the, in the Anglican Ordinariate, um, which is a bunch of Anglican churches that have gone into the Roman Catholic Church, they've maintained this as well, quite well, actually. Um, so I want you to hear that, that, that there's a big, there's kind of a big difference going on here about the intuition. Is that helpful? Um, and I would say, too, like, you know, there's nothing saying you ha must have perfect remission in order to receive communion, right? There's nothing saying you must have perfect faith, because that would prevent all of us, right? Um, but it has to be that, that you're earnest in it. It has to be that you really desire this. And of course, this is actually one of the areas where frequent communion as a modern practice, which it really is, um, you know, for most of the church's history, people were content to sort of receive, the, receive communion once or twice or four times a year. That was it. Um, and they did so making deep preparation, constant preparation. Um, in our own day, we've said, well, we really do think that it's good for people to receive the regular grace of the, of the Eucharist. And, and I'll just tell you, I'm personally not settled about that. Like, I think it's still open to question whether or not that's been good for us as a church. Like, it might, in fact, be better to say for a lot of people, like, yeah, you know, I, I don't have to receive every Sunday. I got to be there, but I don't have to receive every Sunday. 
Um, is it good to receive regularly? Absolutely. I'm going to throw that right to you. I'm going to say, yes, it's good, but not for everyone. Like some people, some people really ought to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take a Eucharistic fast or something, right? Like, and you know, I would even say to you, like Lent's a good time to do that. Um, really focus upon the spiritual life. Really, uh, you know, take that in. Of course, you know, not for everybody. I might, you know, just depends. Um, Okay, and these are called sacraments of the gospel. This is the last bit. Um, they're sacraments of the gospel um, because they are given as, as necessary to the gospel. Okay, now I, and I would say as well, some people would quibble with this. They'd say, well, but, you know, absolution's in the gospel. It is. It's in John chapter 20. Um, you know, uh, marriage is in the gospel. Yep, it is. Absolutely. Um, why isn't it considered a, a sacrament of the gospel? Well, for this reason, because the relation of, the, of baptism in the Eucharist to the gospel is of such degree that one cannot actually become a partaker of the gospel without, in the general sense, being baptized and receiving communion. That's really important. Like, and I think we just need to say that. Like, that, that is absolutely the case. But for the others, it's not, it's not there. Okay. Are there other sacraments? And this is the answer, and it is a great example of rich Anglican fudge with nuts, okay? But I'll, I'll parse it out for you. Other rites and institutions commonly called sacraments include confirmation, marriage, absolution, and the anointing of the sick. These are sometimes called sacraments of the church, okay? So there's a really easy way to remember the sacraments if you want to kind of memorize the seven sacraments, and I'll say why I say seven sacraments here in a bit. But first you think what? Baptism? course. That's the first sacrament. Um, in fact, one cannot receive any other sacrament outside of marriage without being first baptized, okay? Um, secondly, you think, okay, the Eucharist, right? And then you think confirmation, right? And these three are actually often called the rites of initiation, because in the ancient church, they were practiced together all at once, okay? So you would, you would be baptized, um, you would be, conf you would be, uh, you would have the, the, you would receive communion, and you'd have the bishop lay hands on you for the, for the increase of the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, and they were so tied together that it actually became like, well, you know, you receive the Holy Spirit in these three united rites was kind of how a lot of people would speak of it. Okay, so you think those, and then you think now, so that's three, right? And then you, then you, then you should think this. You should think um, two states of life and vocation. Okay. First being marriage, second being holy orders, ordination. Okay, so you got that. And two sacraments for healing, one dealing with the healing of sin, the other one dealing with healing of the body. See, so it's really kind of, you know, that's a good way to memorize them. I, you know, I'll often uh, be teaching people who have to prepare for ordination exams who haven't memorized the sacraments. Like, well, there's a really easy way to do this. And it doesn't have to be hard. Okay. And these are sometimes called sacraments of the church. The language that the 39 articles use is that um, there are five commonly called sacraments, which, by the way, is not a slight. Okay? It's not a slight at all. There are lots of things commonly called things. Like in the prayer book, it says, uh, Christmas, or no, the Feast of the Nativity, commonly called Christmas. Right? It's done very consciously, knowing that everyone's going to call it Christmas till kingdom come, uh, but the official name is the Feast of the Nativity. Okay, which I love. That's a, good, that's a good example. But it doesn't mean sort of like, if you're a loser, I guess you'll call it Christmas. Like, no, it's not that. It's like, it's, it's, there's no attitude in it at all. It's just like, that, it's commonly called that. Well, why are they commonly called sacraments? Because that's what they are. And linguistically, we don't call things things they're not. 
Okay? We call them sacraments. Why? Because they're sacraments. And I will quibble with any Anglican who says, they're not sacraments. Well, then why do we call them that? No, they're sacraments, okay? Are they sacraments, are they sacraments like baptism in the Eucharist? Yes. Are they generally to surface elevation? No. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the kind of level of division we have to have. And that there is division does not mean that these five are not sacraments. They're sacraments. Okay. Why? Because they have an outward and visible sign and an inward and spiritual grace. They're given by Christ. Like, all of that is clear. Okay. Um, I want to make that abundantly clear. Um, and we shouldn't shy away from saying that. Um, only two uh, comes in um, in some Anglican catechisms that are of the far more uh, Puritan-friendly persuasion. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, so, but this is important to note uh, that this is a this is a big old huge debate, and I take my side very seriously because um, the reality of it is that, um, well, I'll put it this way. It's all too easy to just sort of neglect these five if you do not care about them. If you don't think they're sacraments, then you just sort of say, well, you know, eh, and you just don't worry about it. But yet, I'm just going to tell you, like, the, the prayer book actually commends them to us. Um, the marriage is commended by, by Christ to, you know, to be, and by Paul, to be honored by all people, as the prayer book says. Um, so anyway, that's my take. All right, and we'll talk about that. Okay, how do these differ from sacraments of the gospel? They are not ordained by Christ as necessary to salvation, but arose from the practices of the apostles and the early church, or were blessed by God in Scripture. God clearly uses them as means of grace. And that last sentence is so important, right? What are sacraments? Well, first, they're out invisible signs of inward and spiritual grace, right? Yes, but they're also, we can just simply say, means of grace, right? Um, means of grace, meaning that you, you come to the sacraments and you ought not doubt that you receive that grace. Um, but let me just say a little bit about this center section. They were not ordained by Christ as necessary to salvation. Okay, we've covered that one. But arose from the practice of the apostles in the early church. And this is really important that we note this, right? Um, there are some things that where the, the, the mode of administration of the sacrament has changed throughout time. Okay, so a great example would be marriage. It used to be that, uh, that um, you know, churches would just sort of accept natural marriage and there wasn't really like giant Christian weddings going on. Now, in the fourth century, that starts to happen, right? Um, as well, we could say about things like, uh, and even then, it's not the same. So, you know, it used to be that there was not one unified marriage rite. You had a betrothal on the steps of the church, right, when you got engaged, and then you had the marriage later on. Um, and in fact, we kind of do this <laughs> even today. Like when I'm meeting with a couple for pre-marriage counseling, they declare their they declare their intent in writing um, to be married, and that's that's a kind of betrothal. And even in the marriage rite in the prayer book, there's a declaration of intent. Um, so it's very important to keep in mind. Uh, confessions are another great example. the The mode of administration is, has changed vastly between the you know second and third centuries and now. Um, it used to be that, uh, that um, absolution was kind of something the bishop offered those who were scandalously uh, cut off from the communion of the church and had to be received after fasting very, very rigorously through Lent. Um, in many cases, uh, dressed in sackcloth and ashes on the steps of the church, sleeping on the steps of the church. Um, 
which was, you know, if you want to rejoin, well, you know, this is it. Um, and oh, by the way, this is your only shot. Like you get to do, you get to be reconciled once, and that's it. And, you know, mess up again, and you're out. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll say this: I think Roman Christians and like you know North African Christians were really fine with this. Irish, not so much. Um, well, well, why? Well, because consider this for a moment. Can you imagine? Are any of you Irish or have an Irish background? Okay, listen. I'm married to an Irish woman. They hold grudges, and they, they hold grudges professionally, okay? Um, so can you imagine what would happen if you had to make public penance and public confession of sin? Like, you know, yeah, it wouldn't go well. Right? They'd be killing each other. So it's actually St. Patrick that, that came up with this idea of, you know, maybe we could just keep it private. Maybe we could just say, you know, make your confession public, you know, privately with me. I'm a bishop, you know, and isn't that great? And, and we'll make it work, right? Um, and that's how, that's how private auricular confession had its advent in the church, was this desire to protect the, the consciences of sinners. At the same time, because the rigors of uh, post-scandalous uh, uh, reconciliation were so high, Many people were delaying baptism until they were on their deathbeds, and the church fathers hated this. They were like, they were constantly saying, you know, I love uh, St. John Chrysostom will say, you know, you think that you can just delay baptism, and you think, ah, the, you know, the, the priests of the church will come to me when I'm on my deathbed. <laughs> he says, you forget that we're just like other people. We get very busy, <laughs> and we might not make it to your deathbed, to baptize you on your deathbed. And, and then, you, then you go to hell because of your neglect, right? So he's really kind of like hard about this. And, and, uh, and you see the problem immediately. It's like people are delaying baptism. That's bad. How do we make it so that people are more open to being baptized earlier? Well, private confession, right? And I want you to see this, actually, that private confession is actually the, the way that we maintain the, the primacy and importance of baptism. Without private confession, we would have this flourishing of people saying, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, I'm, you know, I'm just content to sort of be a catechumen and you know, be baptized on my deathbed. Um, that's not good. You know, like, we really, really do need to say that these, these sacraments are for the living of the Christian life in the ordinary. Um, so that's that. Next week, we'll talk about baptism. I, I would imagine that uh, it will be a, a two-week process to get through baptism and confirmation. We are moving very, very, very slowly. Um, that's okay. I'm fine with that. COVID has made it such that it's very hard to go quickly through the catechism. Um, what I will tell you all is that I do want to finish the catechism, and so I'll try to pick up the pace a little bit. But I also want to assure you that um, I'm, I'm going to see I'm going to see this whole thing through in one form or another with you. And so if if we kind of get to the end of the summer and we're not done, then maybe we can do some other ways of of getting this done. Um, but having said that. This is the point in time where you start to say um, things like this. Um, is God calling me to be confirmed? <laughs> if you're not baptized, is God calling me to be baptized? Like, all those questions should be rising in your mind. Um, some of you have already been confirmed, but you found this, uh, this period of time very fruitful, and you decide, I'd like to reaffirm my baptismal commitments. Great, you should do that. Um, and when the bishop comes in Easter, that's when all that will happen. So uh, be considering that. Um, I usually ask for people to make that commitment by the last Sunday of Epiphany, which I think this year is Valentine's Day. So keep that in mind. All right.